0: This is making fucking art. Piece of shit. Hello, I'm Stu Rolls and welcome back to another episode of the Back in the Band podcast. The show where we remember a simpler time in our lives when music and being in a band back in the day meant you could actually dream of one day living the life of a rock and roll star. But instead of such lofty heights, today we'll be reminiscing on mellowing out in the studio, upgrading your shitty original gear and college teachers letting rip. Before we do though, time to bring in today's co-host for the day, a man who never gets bored of getting his ass kicked on Pro Evo 6 on the PS2. It's Dave Bentley. Hi there. Here we go again, bringing back some band chat with another guy who suffered Huddersfield University in the noughties, mate. So our guest today for this episode brings up the theme of YouTube tutorials and something that I wanted to ask you actually, how you got to learn guitar. What were you doing? Were you using tabs? Were you having a tutor? Was
1: it self-taught? So when I first decided I wanted to learn, my dad had got a student, because my dad was an English teacher, who could play the guitar. That played in some covers bands, I think.
0: Robbie Williams covers bands, was
1: it? Don't think so. (laughs) I think he was a bit cooler than me. I don't know, I guess bunged him a bit of money, and he would just teach me. He would just write out the lyrics to songs and then the chords above them, and we would just play them along and he would sing them. And that was how I'd learnt.
0: On the acoustics, yes.
1: Just on acoustic guitar, yeah. Yep. Just strumming along, old Beatles songs, things like that. And then from there, he started teaching me little bits of tablature and I'd buy tab books. I remember because I definitely had Radiohead the Benz tab book. Oh, I'm just now remembering
0: tab books. That was a yeah. thing, wasn't it? Like, it was a literally... real thing.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm not even talking internet. Like I remember the point when, the first point I really knew of the internet, my auntie... Had got it. And when I went to stay with her, I printed off 500 pages of tabs from Olga Tabs, I think it was called. I just printed off just absolutely everything to take home with me.
0: With no idea whether there were always like mistakes and stuff. So you'd always be like correct. Yeah, 100%.
1: And to be completely honest, I don't think I was ever disciplined enough to really pay attention to it. Anyway, what I would do is I'd learn where it began on like the fretboard. And then just pick it up by ear from there, and will learn my own version of how it went.
0: Yeah, no, it's just mad to remember that because I just I wonder now again, being thirty seven and and not a child trying to badly play the bass. Like I wonder, do kids now, do thirteen year olds still use tabs, or is it literally? Like, I'm going to watch YouTube and and that's it. I don't know. I
1: reckon they probably do use tabs, but I think there's more kind of play along stuff. YouTube will play a really large part in it, and I reckon they'll learn so much quicker and just be so much better at it
0: yeah because it would like i remember so many people that i knew who were learning and they'd have tutors and they'd go right i want to learn this they have to go to their tutor tell them and they'd spend if they have an hour lesson half of it would be the tutor trying to work out how to play it to then say oh by the way this is actually how you play it but yeah just another world man but speaking another world in this one where we no longer have to load cds into the boots of the car to make our dad listen to our latest terrible mixtape let's get going
1: Today's guest is Ben Heslop. I first met Ben at the resident bar on the student campus at university. It was the first night of a new grown-up adventure and myself and my new flatmates were trying to get to know each other as quickly and as awkwardly as possible. I broke the tension by suggesting we try and work out how old the guy at the bar was, for it's safe to say that Ben appeared to have already had a fair few grown-up adventures of his own. I had the job of ascertaining the correct answer and we hit it off from there. But we're not here to talk about any of that. We want to know about Ben's misguided foray into the alternative music scene of the 1990s, the left turns in life that led him to beat the skins in the best-named band in the North. Ben, welcome to Back in the Band. Great to have you with us.
2: Awesome to see you both. Thank you for having me.
1: So, to get us in the mood, tell us what your vibe was back in the band days.
2: What were you guys listening to? I just started Sixth Form, which to put in context was 1997. I was very much a grunge kid, so it was all like what you'd expect from the American arts. Nirvana was, was obviously the, the the gold standard. It was like a real awakening. I'd moved out of a really small town where I was like the only person who had blonde curtains my age and, and looked like a six foot four girl. Um, and, and then suddenly I was with loads of people who looked like that. And that was really cool. And um, there were some older kids in the village and th- they, they were really formative in, in forming like, where my music went. But there was no one at, in my, my sort of age group. So there was a lot of new stuff going around. And Britpop was going off. And I quite like Britpop. I was really pleased that my sixth form media studies teacher, her son in law, was the drummer in pulp. Really? Oh, there you go. I was into that. Well, I mean, this is it. We're surrounded by greatness, aren't we? Did you hear and that?
0: I, th- I just, no, I just, I just wonder if you heard that name drop. Did you? <laughs> yes.
2: Okay. I heard it land, I think. N- never met him, but I did get a pair of signed drumsticks off the beautiful Mrs. Worth. It was his mother-in-law. Uh, and I ran out of sticks in my rock and roll days and then was like, thought, Pope is like a little bit crap, so I'll just use these sticks. I'm not even bothered. Whereas, <laughs> and I just used them until they broke. But, um, so like, it was a reawakening, but it was mainly... I was a big grunge kid. I really enjoyed
0: the description of you looking like a six foot four blonde girl with really wide shoulders and thin
2: waist. Yeah, I had the wide shoulders, but I was really skinny back then. Uh, and the curtains, just from the back, I'm sure many men would have. Anyway, we digress.
1: <laughs> <laughs> He's really committed to the curtains. The photo of you, yeah, it was it was a look that looked quite cultivated. Did you get any shit for that, or was it just because it was cool at the time
2: to look? Like oh, constantly, yeah, it were very unaccepting in, in where I was from. And, and as I say, these, the older lads that I hang around with, which were really cool, they, as I'd started secondary school, I think they were in the last year, so they'd probably left. And then it was just me being weird in everyone's eyes and everyone else was wearing. Were eclipse jackets a thing round your way? Yeah. Yeah. I, remember, I think I remember eclipse jackets. Little bomber jackets with little raster men on the back and, and yeah. not really liking music. Or it was all like dance music and stuff like that. I was like walking around in flares that I'd made myself from material that I'd found and just got normal jeans and made them super wide and oh man what like cutting it up the side and yeah, then yeah, adding just something a in bit of adding it to make flares <laughs> oh and stuff. So like yeah. Charlie Chort I mean when you when you, say, when you say it like that I mean I should have been really killed really. I wish I had some pictures of that.
1: You were deserving, yeah.
2: Yeah. But, but anyway, arriving at sixth form in the big metropolis of Carlisle, suddenly there was a load of people into a load of different stuff. And I no longer stood out, weirdly. There was a, there was a gang of us. There was other people shopping for secondhand leather jackets and and, and not wanting to go to the club and stuff. So, yeah, it was, it was a real cool time for me. I felt like I was hitting my stride. If only I could be in a band, I thought. And then... <laughs>
0: Nice segue, mate. I enjoyed that one. So tell us, you got into bands. Tell us about the first band that you
2: were in. The band, I think, because we we cannot (laughs) claim to be in more than one band. And it was a (laughs) short-lived thing anyway, which makes it even more beautiful. So basically, I bought a drum kit when I was about 14, now, those of you that are doing the math here will realize that means i had been playing drums for about three years, so should have been fairly competent, but it basically consisted of not trying to be in a band, sitting in my room, listening to stuff on my headphones and drumming along to it. There was no YouTube kids, no one was getting self-taught on the internet, and there was no drum coaches nearby, and I definitely wasn't on the budget to travel for one and i just enjoyed it so i got there and two of the people that i met were just their band was just coming to an end and they gigged quite a bit and they were the the eponymously named uh, shirley's temple i think that is just magnificent that (laughs) you love that don't you so shirley's temple i'd seen flyers for them they were of that level they had photocopied flyers sort of thing and their drummer who was known as pinchy evans
0: Right? Do we know the reason for that,
2: or is it just that, or is it just <laughs> yeah? Folklore. But I don't know whether I can say. Obviously, if we all think about times when, like, we're we're all our eyes are a little bit pinchy. Um, I
1: think he was <laughs> oh, okay. I think that's actually better than I thought it was going to be.
2: Oh right, yeah, no, not like he had eyes like he thieved everything. Um, but he was a really good drummer, by the way, and um, he'd gone to uni or gone to something or like that. And anyway, this caused a rift with Shirley's Temple and everyone else was left um, and then the lead singer went away to uni as well so that kind of ended that but they were all my my, my mates um, apart from Pinchy Evans because I was really jealous of him and he'd already gone so the, the remaining members needed a drummer I dropped out of sixth form already in year one it was too much I was doing photography history and media <laughs> studies and I dropped the history because it was like you had to, that was like work. So then I was just doing media studies, photography. And then I said, Can I drop media studies? And they said, Look, lad, there's no way you're going to go to six one, just do photography. I was like, Ah, oh, fuck it, I won't do any of it then. Uh, but then we all <laughs> decided we were going to start at the Carlisle Art College at the time, which is now part of the university we were doing a popular music course. So we thought, yeah, let's do that. So we all started on the popular music course. No, actually, i tell you a lie. They did, and I did performing arts, realised it was full of people I hated, and then by default said, I'm going to go on the popular music course with my mates because we're, we're going to start a band, aren't we? So we started a band, and that was where Monkey 500 was born. Which now was we need band. to know
0: why Monkey 500 was chosen <laughs> well, as a band name.
2: I don't know what the link is, being that we're all good card-carrying northerners, but a monkey is Cockney for 500. So we just called it, basically it's called 500-500, but Monkey 500. I don't, I don't know. I, I can't remember any more about why, where we got that reference from or why we thought it was good, but that was what we were called, Monkey 500.
0: So Monkey 500 then, man, tell me like, a little bit more musically, what what kind of stuff is that? It
2: was more of the same. It was just that grunge element of basic chord progressions, quite heavy, like, no offence to, to Mr. Tom, he would say it himself, pretty bad vocals. We used to spend quite a long time thinking about lyrics. I remember we all came to my mum and dad's house when they were away one weekend to have a lyric writing session. Really? <laughs> but the stuff we came out with. When I listen back to it, I love listening to the lyrics, but I'm just like, what the heck does this even mean? Yeah. (laughs) Tell me those
1: song titles again. There was one that I really liked.
2: There's Midnight Express. There was the De Niro's, because we loved Robert De Niro. There was song for albania that's i remember because that was part of our popular music course that we had to do peace and i can't remember what was going on in the news but we did a song for albania at the time uh, i can't remember all the, what were the other titles Bentley. which ones can you remember uh let me have a look because it uh, was one that i really liked but to be honest
1: now you've given me song for albania <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, beat. it's hard to really see past that to that was, there
2: was a recording of us doing that at, 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 at the only one of the only proper gigs that we did. I remember when we'd done it, Chris said at the end of it, like to, to muted applause, he said, Sorry, but that was our something we had to do for our popular music course, and it's shit or something like that on the record. <laughs> that was how he filled it, and we were getting like marked, graded on this, and that, that was, yeah, probably not the best way to get a grade. I like Message Girl. Message Girl, yeah. Yeah, I just
1: got to see you, uh, Message Girl. And, um, Our Soul Distress.
2: Right, yeah. No, that's called Soul Distress. (laughs) Because if you say it wrong, (laughs) it it was originally called Our Soul Distress. Collective pain. But then everyone used to say it quick and you'd just say Our Soul Distress. (laughs) And everyone would go, (laughs) what did you just say? And we'd be like, oh, yeah. We should probably take (laughs) the hour off there, shouldn't we? Because we cannot go on stage and shout Our Soul Distress. (laughs) Not after song for our baby. <laughs> <laughs> Another song we've just been to shit. We've been writing it for our music course. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so yeah, that was the vibe. So you mentioned it a little bit. You did a live recording. Were there any other studio sessions with 500-500? <laughs>
2: the, 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 yeah, the, oh, the thousands, as we could call ourselves. now? There was something to do with the course where there's a local recording studio, a place called Atlas Works, which is still in existence, but the recording studio isn't, where we got like... I think it was so ridiculous like two one-week blocks in a recording studio now most professional bands would have absolutely killed for that and it was amazing and the gigs were one thing for me i was very nervous gigs i hadn't gigged before but the studio time was like that was what i remember the most because that was doesn't get more rock and roll than that. We had a producer, we were in a studio, there was a couch. Yeah. We'd just get stoned and go in and say stuff about stuff and have to record stuff. At that point, there was nothing like that at the art. Room. So, like, we were just practicing in little Anderson shelters and porter cabins. You know, those rooms you have at your school where they just need to build an extra building. So, they just build it yeah. out of wood. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. was where the popular music course was because obviously it was shit and no one cared. And suddenly we went from that to being in a proper studio. I remember there was another guy called Davey Campfire. <laughs> he was something to do with the course, but he came in and he'd invented a mind machine, which was basically some goggles with some glasses on. And you went on this trip. I can't remember how this all this occurred, but he, he said, oh, I'll bring it down the studio tomorrow, man. So we spent one morning <laughs> our goggles, just looking at these lights, you know, like, but it, think about it though. I was like 17, 18 at this point. This is the dream. We're the band, man.
0: That just sounds like a scene out of that 70s show, you know, where they just go <laughs> around the room, stoned off their tits with these goggles on. Man. That, Who's that? paying
2: for it? Well, it was all part of the course, wasn't it? All oh, right, Okay, I didn't realise that. I mean, all... part of it was we got these two one-week blocks to record something. Right, yeah, um, yeah. Which, when you think back, that's ludicrous. And this must have been the first two terms of being on a popular music course. And they were giving us studio time. How much time did you dedicate to the Mind Machine? <laughs> that was probably a good morning. The whole band had to have a go. David Campfire had to give an explainer. We had to describe what we saw when we were on it for his thesis or something. So <laughs> but there was like, it was, yeah, it was crazy times in the studio. That was what I loved the most. But also it was really great because that was my introduction to learning how to like mic up a drum kit and how to set. Because funnily enough, they weren't teaching us any of that on the popular music course which i should
0: have done i'm i'm
2: f- interested <laughs> though ben what year was that that would have been 97 97 98, 97, 98 yeah, so what maybe.
0: off the back of that and i'm just thinking like technology wise what would you have come away from those sessions with Are they would you guys have got a
2: burnt cd Not even burnt cds would you what would, they, no, what would you I come think, out of that with i think we had a tape yeah i think we came away with a tape because i remember my mum Bless her. When I was in my early 20s, there was someone offering, we will put your tapes on CD. And she got, there was a tape of me and mum and dad telling me stories when I was about three that she had, and me just chatting away as a three-year-old. And that, she went and got those tapes and put them on CD. And then, of course, hence why it's still in, in circulation, because we could put it on the computer.
0: But that's the thing. If you think like that technology, CDs were around... Then, definitely, you were buying CDs in the 90s, right? But yeah, yeah. But to be able to burn easily, oh, no. like having a CD burn, I'm sure you would have had a studio, but CD burners wouldn't have been... No, not really, not No, know. not at all. Speaking of gear, then, you were obviously a drummer. What, what kit were you using? Did you always
2: have the same one? I was a two-kit drummer, two-kit drummer, Steve. Uh, I had right. the, the, the right. kit that I bought from a man's flat in Wigton with my dad when I was 14, which didn't have a name on it. It was black. Is about all we're going for with that one, and I think I paid like 150 quid for that, and that was my go-to coming in stickers, very basic setup. And then I upgraded, and when another friend of mine who had a nice, I think it was a Premier, Premier, no, yeah, Premier, Mm -hmm. yeah, Yeah. Premier. Um, He had a a really nice Premier white kit, and I didn't like the fact it was white because that was way too clean (laughs) for my image, but. He was rich and soon went off it and I like sidled in and saved up my money and bought his kit off him. So that was like my, my lead kit, but I don't have much love for that kit. My kit was the kit I got when I was 14, which I can't tell you what it was. It was old and knackered and there was yeah. definitely no Zildjian symbols on it sort of thing. But that was the bedroom kit. The one I always loved. Love that.
1: How are you getting that stuff around? How would you get some gigs? <laughs>
2: So I had one kit in my bed sit, which I'd probably, someone, I think Woff had a car and he came around in his Fiesta or there might have been one. I wouldn't have took my kit to the studio. This was like, there'll be just a studio kit or whatever. But yeah, I think someone had a car. There was cars was in Woff. that day. There might not have been CD burners, David, but we had cars. Come on, then, um,
0: We want to know about Woff.
2: Woff? was in another band. Woff still lives in Carlin. I still see him now a bit. I can't remember what his band were called. But I remember he had a, a beautiful shot of him up a tree for one of his gigs. <laughs> I should have remembered what Woff's band So you don't think about this stuff, and then suddenly you get asked a question, you think, oh, yeah, Woff and his band, what were they called? I've
1: never thought about Woff in my life. I'm not going to stop thinking about Woff moving forward. <laughs> he was a lovely lad. <laughs> So what happened to the guys? What happened with Monkey 500? Well, that's the thing.
2: First off, we had a gig in the Twisted Wheel, which was like the local club, and then we had a couple of gigs at the front page, but then it didn't go anywhere because mainly we probably weren't that good. And also, I'm a break, I hate to break it to you at this point in the, in the proceedings, lads, but I left the popular music course, I decided it wasn't for me. So I I left the course and there's a brilliant, one of the most rock and roll things ever happened to me. I think he was called, was he called Tim Earl? I can't remember. He was one of the the tutors on there. He was a great guy and probably had our best interests at heart. We could not take him seriously at all. I think his nickname was the Earl of Churl. And he came up to us and we were having a fag outside and I just told whoever that we, me and Chris Tom were leaving the popular music course. And he stormed up and he came raising up going, I've just been told, I've just been told, I've just been told you've left. And we were like, yeah, yeah, we have, like, it's just not for us. And, and he was like, do you realise what you're doing? And I was thinking... Why do you why are you going on like us like we're absolutely? This is weird. And his parting shot was he I remember I can picture it now outside the front of Carlisle Art College. And he looked at me, and Chris, and he, he sat us dead straight in the eyes and he went, How am I supposed to make you famous now? And then walked <laughs> off. And I just thought this was the most nonsensical set. It was just ridiculous. I was like, we were never gonna be famous. We've done like two gigs. We're clearly not got what it takes we're not even like a thing oh the only people that would know of monkey 500 were like the people i'm telling about it now or people who are actually <laughs> at that and they'll have hopefully forgotten we it wasn't like we were a band on a scene like a lot of your bands and he just i just thought what a stupid thing to say But did he say, was he
0: being serious? There was not like any sort of sense of irony? Oh, no.
2: He was raging. He was raging. That's mad.
0: So tell us, I haven't heard too much about the gigs. Was there any standout memories or any of these gigs for 500 Squared?
2: Yeah, the one at the wheel, I remember we got paid in beer and we ripped into that early on, as you would, and then we got free entry into the wheel afterwards. So that was pretty cool to hang around with the 17 people that were in the Twisted Wheel afterwards. And then <laughs> the one at the front page, because there was quite a few bands on that, night, like, because it was an organised event where we had to play songs for Albania, whatever it was. And that was really good because that was in the wheel, you were at like audience level. So you were just eyeballing that 17 people were in the club like seven of them probably saw us so sort of I so you were just stood <laughs> eyeballing seven people who were watching you play a few songs uh, but at the at the page uh, to this day the stage is still there there's an amazing stage um and it, and it's like a is it don't need to explain to everyone what a venue looks like but it's a great rectangle shaped high-staged venue so that there was a room in the back you know where like you know it was proper and you, you were the next band on so you were in your little room at the back and then you had to yeah. come out on stage and there was there's was maybe like i want to say 300 people there so i reckon there was probably about 120 because if I'm saying 300, <laughs> I reckon it was probably... I'd take 120 is decent, I think. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, even half in it and minus 30. Uh, we're still talking. That was by far my biggest gig. So that was like a real big moment of coming out on stage there. I remember I was so nervous on the first bit. I crashed the start of it. I remember I was so nervous. And, I, and then I just went, doosh, and hit both the symbols, And then just realised and didn't do anything. <laughs> and, and then it all kicked <laughs> off after that. And uh, yeah. But it was a great gig. There was lots of applause from the masses, ranging from 100 to 120 to 300 people. And I remember coming off stage feeling pretty euphoric, but we were under no illusions because we did tell everyone that the song for Albania was shit and we apologised, but we had to do it. (laughs) Are you glad that you did it? Do you miss it? Oh, without doubt, I'd probably stick at it uh, and and try and make something of it. I, I I genuinely, I I definitely wouldn't do anything different. It's one of the like least successful things I've done, but one of the best things I've done in the sense of you, if you grow up with love of music, I was I was brought up in a house where records were played all the time. Yeah. Tapes were being given to me by older boys from the age of six onwards. Music has, has always been like a huge part of my life. So to end up in a band at any point is just... Like. Of course, it was absolutely perfect, and I loved every minute of it. If I were good to do it all again, I'd probably try to be a bit better or, or put more effort in, but it's almost quite nice that... Not just for the benefit of this podcast, I hasten to add, but it was it's almost quite nice that it was just a thing. And then I went away, I went to sea. That's another story, not for this podcast. And not because of Monkey 500 directly, I hasten to add. I wasn't banished. <laughs> we weren't that bad. You can no longer live on the land. But yeah, and I never, never really revisited, but it, it certainly kept my love of music and bands and interest in creatives and art and, and all of that, which is, is still with me today.
1: I think if you keep it as something that was just a fond memory of something you did that you really enjoyed with your mates and stuff, and you never turned it into anything where you put any pressure on that you needed it to become something else, that's yeah. when it's magic, I think.
2: Yeah. I look back at it with that nostalgia and that magic. And I, I think if the studio time hadn't have happened, it would have been, I maybe wouldn't have even remembered as much about it. But that, that was, for me, that was very special. We were abandoned in a studio, everyone. Do you think that. the
1: mind machine has anything to do with you remembering that time so um, completely?
2: I might find out that David Campfire invented VR goggles or something. And I was actually uh, right at the inception of VR goggles. And i will be like, oh, that's an interesting one. But I'm pretty sure now David Campfire was a very lovely gentleman. I remember him. I wonder what he's up to now. Probably still on his mind machine. If you're out there, David Campfire. <laughs> Please write in. He might be listening. Maybe he's he's already wired into my mind with the mind machine. Never left me.
0: (laughs) So let's shift gears now and dive into the era when our music collection was driven entirely by how much music we'd definitely not stolen or maybe even bought on a CD or cassette. So, Ben... Spill the beans, mate. Tell us the song that throws you right back to that time of being back
2: in the band. Pixies debaser. I'd never. I didn't know the Pixies before I went to sixth form, and they were like my go-to at the time. Mark Ayton, who was in Shirley's Temple, said, "Oh." You got to like Frank Black, man, and I was like, I "Don't know, this is better. Go better, go find out." And then, and then I got into to Frank Black. Teenager of the Year was the album of the moment. Absolute love that album still today. And then that got me into the Pixies. They were into the Pixies. I do little talk Monde that you know, but Debaser for me had raw energy, that raw guitar, that the the screaming of Black Francis just screaming over and over again. And I just we used to hive off from sixth form go back to mark ayton's mum and dad's house where pinchy evans drums were sometimes left in the garage so i'd get to have a go on those and and listen to the pixies any cheese sandwiches made in a microwave and i just loved 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 that the angst and i still love the pixies today it's just such a, a beautiful memory of that anarchic time Debaser
1: is the Pixies track for me as well I think we listened to it a lot at uni so I, I remember it from that but mm. yeah it's that's a hell of a tune. Were you listening to that on
2: then Ben was that CD at the time? That would have been on CD probably bought from either Pink Panther in Carlisle which is an independent record store which obviously hasn't lasted the test of time and then we had a Virgin Megastar on an hour price and that's where all my money would go I amassed a huge cd collection and yeah it really was that was my outlet just just buying and
0: consuming music have you still got that cd collection or did you do the the painful thing of selling it off
2: yeah i did a two-part painful thing it was one of those things that are like remember when people used to get cd collections insured by the time i was like 19 i probably had about i don't know 1200 1300 cds the wow. cds were cheap and I, i'd buy like i'd save up and get like imported versions and japanese imports and they're like so it was a thing and it, it had a value and then i got a bit too cool and was like oh my god i can't believe i've got menswear in here they're so like crap brit pop sorry menswear i did actually like it and i still like it today <laughs> but th- it was that kind of vibe where i was like oh i'm not about that anymore and instead of thinking yeah. it had been lovely to come back and visit that, I like literally binned half the collection off.
0: It's funny. Yeah. I remember doing that as well. Kind of being, yeah, this is embarrassing or this isn't, my vibe isn't that anymore. So I'm going to f- streamline it rather than thinking, well, fuck this eclectically. Yeah. Everything on this shelf is me, whether it's yeah, A yeah. or Z. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a weird thing to do that. It is. back. And I did exactly it's- the same.
2: So then I, I was left with a collection that I thought was cool at the time. Then every, everything started streaming uh, and it just was like, it was out for way longer than it needed to be because I loved that collection. And, and whereas like record crate diggers were that way and, and my, my, I was that way on the shelves and that was a real like, nostril. I love looking through and, and knowing where they all are and just being able to go, oh, yeah, that one, that one. But then it finally got put away and then it was the dreaded, literally when I moved house last year, there was probably about 800 left and now of course music magpie will give you 3p for a a perfectly decent album or something and and there was a few rarities in there i sold off a couple that i knew were still like worth something box sets like nirvana singles collection and and things like that uh and some of the the beatles ep collections and stuff that i'd really my prize and joys didn't get rid of smashing pumpkins ep box set of euphoria that was, uh, still got that, but I, I've, so I've now got it down to about, I don't know, maybe 300 ones that is fairly curated now. And I, but I would much rather have the 1200 and be like, wow, the spin doctors. Yeah. born yeah. on blondes. Who knew why I bought that? That's great. I'm enjoying rebuilding the record collection and mark my words as I stand here talking to you today. I will never get rid of a record. Yeah. You learn by your mistakes.
0: Yep that's the one mate I think that's a really nice thing to finish on but thank you very much for coming on to the pod yeah thanks Ben I really enjoyed hearing about
2: our uh, uh, Woffy or Waffle or Woff. Woff yeah I, I, I see him about town every so often I'll be, uh, next time I see him I'll say Woff, what's your band called I'll send you a text
1: we we'll dedicate this episode to Woff <laughs> good stuff thanks for coming on mate appreciate it lovely cheers Benny
2: no worries Hey there, rockers. This is James Hetfield from Metallica, and you've been tuning in to the Back in the Band podcast. Thanks for riding the lightning with us. Remember, this isn't a one-way conversation. Connect with us on Instagram. You can find us at Back in the Band pod. Got something to say? Tweet us at Back in the Band. And of course, make sure to hit that subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss the riff. Until next time, keep rocking, stay tuned, and stay metal.